All right, good morning. Uh, if you've been here a while, you'll notice I got a haircut. I get one every, about, about every six months, so I've got a big change to my look, and I decided to celebrate by dressing up like Mr. Rogers. So there you go. We're so glad to have you here this Sunday morning, and we are continuing the second week of a series entitled Free, in which we are looking at the book of Galatians. And we're going to be here for about the next, uh, we're going to be in this book for about 10 weeks, and we're on our second week. And the book of uh, Galatians is written completely to teach us about what does it mean to be free in Christ. Freedom through the good news of Jesus Christ is what the book of Galatians is all about. And freedom is really a popular concept. It's something we all want. It's something that if I were to ask you, would you rather be free or the alternative, you would take free every single time. But freedom is really a complex issue. And I've been fascinated with this for a while now. And I kind of talked about this last week. If you were to just simply go to a dictionary and you were to look up in the dictionary what the word free means, freedom, you would see first a definition that would go something like this, that the word carries with it the idea that you have the power and or the right to speak, act, or think in whatever way you want without hindrance or restraint. To act, speak, or think without hindrance or restraint. The power and the right. But if you're anything like me, you'll notice that you've used your power and your right of freedom. And obviously, being in America, for the most part, we, we are very free to do an awful lot of things. But if you're like me, you've used at different times your power and your right to act, speak, or think in whatever way you want. And you have found that your acting, speaking, and thinking has not brought greater freedom, but it's brought greater enslavement. Because we can act, speak, or think freely, without hindrance or restraint, in ways that cause all kinds of problems for us. We can eat too much freely. We can say things freely to our friends and find out that we don't have them anymore, you know, friends. Uh, we can use our freedom to act, speak, and think in an all, whole lot of different ways, but we will find that we are really not free. If you were to look down in the dictionary just a little farther, you would see that the word free not only carries with it the right to act, speak, or think in the ways that you want, but it also carries with it this idea that you are in a state of being in uh, a state of not being enslaved or imprisoned. To be free means you're not enslaved or imprisoned, but even as you look at those definitions behind me, you see freedom is complex. For if I can use my power and my right to speak, act, or think in ways that compromise my own enslavement, to compromise my own freedom and lead to my enslavement, then I'm really not free. This is a concept that the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, in the very first letter that he ever wrote, is trying to bring to the forefront. And we are, what he is going to argue throughout the book of Galatians is that to be truly free, we must not only have the power or the right to do something, we're in a culture where we have the power and right to do almost anything. We must not only have the power or right to do something, but we must be able to walk away from our free choices without destructive and destroying consequences if we are to be truly free. And yet, so many of us that exercise our freedom find that we have consequences that are in our wake all of the time. In the book, Galatians, Paul is arguing that to be free... You must believe and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The word gospel simply means good news. It's some, a word that we use in church an awful lot, and if we're not careful, we'll use it without explaining it, and so no one will know what we mean. But the word gospel just simply means good news. Anything that is good news could be construed as the gospel. But the Bible says that it is the gospel, the one and only story, the primary story of good news. And what is the story of good news? Simply put, and I share this definition in the hopes that you'll just remember it. I've tried to make it as simple as possible. But the gospel story is really a story of how God is putting the world back to the way it should be through the person of Jesus Christ. The story of how God is putting the world back to the way it should be through the person of Jesus Christ. And last week, as we looked at Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, we saw that the gospel includes two core concepts. First, the gospel includes the idea about who we are, that we are sinners in need of being rescued. Our problem as human beings, according to the gospel story, is not that we needed a great teacher to tell us what to do or we needed a better example to show us how to do it. The gospel story of good news teaches us that we are helpless and and in need of a rescuer, a savior. The second thing the gospel story taught us last week through the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 is that Jesus is that rescuer. The true gospel reveals who Jesus is, that he died for our sins in our place. Not to give us a second chance, but he died for our sins in our place for once in all time, so that forever and ever our sins would be paid for if only we would place our trust in Jesus. The death of Christ is not like him giving you a check to cover the car that you crashed. It is him saying, forever and for always, if you place your trust in me, you can be right before God. Now, Paul wrote the book of Galatians to a group of Christians who he had just recently visited, who had been tempted back into a former teaching that was against the gospel of Christ. These men were called Judaizers, and they were Jewish uh, religious leaders. Paul calls them false teachers. And the false teaching that they are spreading was a false gospel that taught that to be truly Christian, you must add to what God has already done through Jesus. Specifically, they were trying to add the concept of circumcision. Now, to us, this is so weird because if in our day somebody tried to tell us, you know, I think you should really join my faith, come in with me, just know that you have to get a surgery beforehand in a very private place that will hurt a lot. That wouldn't be a very popular message. Yes? This is actually the best circumcision joke I've ever told. You actually kind of laughed. (laughs) One day when I mature, I will give up circumcision jokes in my preaching. (laughs) But I'm only 35. (laughs) So, it wouldn't be very popular though, would it? But we are so culturally removed from this idea of circumcision. The idea of circumcision goes all the way back, I believe it's to Genesis chapter 17, and it was an identifying marker of the Jewish nation. And what Paul is saying by telling them you no longer need to be circumcised is that your identifying marker is your faith in Jesus apart from nothing else. Not circumcision, not dietary laws, not even Sabbath. Your identifying marker is the trust that you've placed in Jesus Christ. According to the Apostle Paul, the 
True gospel teaches that God accepts us independent of anything that we do, and therefore we can obey and love and serve him. While the false gospel that Paul is combating in the lives of the audience he writes to says that God will accept you if you behave correctly. That first you must follow God correctly and then he will accept you. But, and here we come to the passage that we are going to be looking at this morning. Paul did not always believe as he did. Right after he clearly states what the gospel is and clearly rebukes and uh, condemns the people who are speaking the false gospel, he tells us a little story. It's Paul's story. It's his testimony. It's found for us on page 943 in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 10. And it's the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. After last week, which we saw Paul identify what the gospel is and how it can be perverted and how it must be maintained, adding nothing to it, he goes on to tell us that he did not always believe the way he does now. And he seeks to tell us his story of how he got to the place where he currently is. And so this morning, this is kind of an unusual story for you guys who like history. This might be interesting to you. I will try to keep this condensed, but what I'm going to try to do is you can kind of pretend that we're on around a campfire, and I'm going to try to tell you the story of the Apostle Paul and how he converted from a very different thinking to a very new way of thinking. His story is recorded for us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. It's very unique. There's nothing like it in all of the other epistles of Paul. He wrote 13 of them, so that's saying something. This is his story. Chapter 1, verse 13, here as I read aloud. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and how I tried to destroy it. Now I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. But when God, who sent me apart from my mother's, mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any man or any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is just another name for Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was, known pers I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They had only heard this message. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also, and I went in response to a revelation. And meeting privately with those esteemed leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted them to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them, not even for a moment, 
so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were, whatever they were makes no difference to me, for God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Now, I'm going to try to condense this and make this story as short as I can while still filling you in on the major movements of exactly what happened in the life of Paul to take him from point A, which isn't a good point, to point B, which was a follower of Jesus. In this story, which I just read to you, I want to highlight three core movements that shaped how he saw things and developed his gospel message. He points all three of these out to you, and they are core to understanding what he is trying to communicate. And they go right along with his story. You're going to get a lot of biography and historical details, and there will be no test on it later, but it will still be fun. Uh, And so let's jump right in. The first thing that Paul wants to teach us from this text, and I'm convinced this is exactly why he writes it. The first thing that he wants to teach us about his gospel message is that he did not make it up himself. He didn't create it himself. He goes out of his way to make this point. We learn first in this text about Paul's background. We see it in verses 13 and 14. And if you wanted to do extra work, you could even turn to Philippians 3 later this afternoon in your nap time. I'm certainly going to take my nap today. Um, But here, for the purposes of what we're trying to do, I want to give you a picture of what Paul was like before he ever came to the realization of who Jesus was. Paul was a religious Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee, which was a subset of Judaism, the Jewish faith, that strictly followed the written and traditional law. The first five books of the Old Testament are referred to as law. They're called Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in them, uh, there are about 613 laws that the Jewish nation was supposed to follow. The Pharisees, the strictest of the law observers, not only followed these 613 laws, but they had another set of laws on top of these laws that were kind of, they referred to it as the fence that kept them from getting close to the line of breaking one of the 613. You know how a teenager is always trying to push the line and try to get as close to the line as possible? The Pharisees were the exact opposite. There was the line and they put up guardrails so they wouldn't even get close to the line. Paul was a religious leader and he was the strictest of religious leaders. Some might call him a fundamentalist, a fanatic. Paul hated the church as a result of his faith. He hated the church and it was his mission, as he tells you in verses 13 and 14, to persecute it with the goal of destroying it. The very first story and really the only story we have of uh, Paul is before he is even referred to by the name of Paul. He was referred to in uh, Acts chapter 7 at the very end of the chapter and we see him first on scene at the death of a very famous Christian. 
under the name of Saul. Now, it can get a little confusing. Why is he called Saul? Why is he he called Paul? Saul is simply, it has no real spiritual significance. Saul was simply his Roman name while Paul was, or Saul was his Jewish name while Paul was his Roman name. And so when he got more involved with going to the Gentiles, he went by his Roman name because that made more sense. It's like if I went to Mexico, I'd ask you to call me Guillermo. Yes, because my name is William. Actually, I really wouldn't do that. That would be weird. But that's the idea. I looked that up to make sure that was true. The Spanish equivalent for my name, William, is Guillermo. All right, enough with that rabbit trail. So Saul, the very first time we see him on scene, we see him in the book of Acts at the very end of the chapter after a, while a very famous Christian by the name of Stephen is preaching a message for which he is about to be stoned to death. That was the common way of killing people who preached heresy in those days, throwing stones at them. Um, Paul is seen not throwing the stones, but is kind of being the coat checker for the men who are. And he is there, and we are told at the end of the book of Acts, or the book, uh, chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 of the book of Acts, that it was at the death of Stephen that he was emboldened even further to persecute the church and that he went from house to house seeking out Christians so that he might imprison them. In fact, it is at the point of Paul's conversion that we are about to speak of in a moment that Paul is on his way to Damascus, a city uh, in that still exists by the same name today, in Syria, 135 miles north of Jerusalem. I'm told by scholars it would have taken about a six-day walk to get there. It is on his walk from Jerusalem to Damascus, as he has been commissioned by the high priest in Jerusalem himself, to go to Damascus with a list of names of Christians so that he might find them And the language of the text is even clear, and drag them back to Jerusalem to imprison them. And it is on his road that we see, and Paul wants to make this so clear to you because he wants you to understand that he did not make this gospel up himself. It is on the road to Damascus that we see Paul's conversion. Paul's conversion was not something uh, existential. He was not troubled by the world around him, and so he sat in a brick oven to decide, as Descartes, what life is all about. He was not like Buddha, who saw suffering and who sat down and considered what life means. Paul was a religious fanatic who believed 100% that his belief was correct. And on the road to Damascus, and we see this, Paul gives just the slightest of allusion to it in verse 15 and the beginning of 16 in our text, when he says, the Son of God revealed himself to me. But we can read the full story in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, but it is on the road to Damascus with the express purpose of persecuting the church of God in a belief that he was convinced he was right, that everything changed for him in an instant. We are told in Acts chapter 9, and this is kind of unusual and not normal for today, but we are told that a light suddenly flashed around him and all of his traveling companions could see it. And a voice spoke to him from heaven and it said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds back to it and he says, Lord, who are you? Now that's a weird question, isn't it? It'd be like, If my wife came up to me and said, Bill, who are you? 
I have this fantasy that I'm like a spy, you know, an international spy. And um, I am going around the world to all these exotic places. We watch those thrillers and I say, you know, I remember when I did that. And she goes, yeah, whatever. I think it's hilarious. She never does. But imagine if all of a sudden I was revealed to be this awesome spy and had all these like skills. I don't even know what that means, but... And she all of a sudden saw me for the first time. I think this is the plot line of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and they both were spies. But imagine she's like, Bill, who are you? Yes? This is kind of what is going on. For when Paul hears the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He knows exactly who is speaking to him. It is God. But now, put yourself in the mindset of Paul. He says, Lord, why are you, or Lord, who are you? He knows it's God. But he sees himself as somebody who is serving God, who's doing the will of God. And now God has spoke from him to heaven, from heaven and says, why are you persecuting me? And God responds to him. And we learn that it is not just God, but it is Jesus himself that speaks back. Who is God? The second person of the Trinity and says, it is Jesus who you are persecuting. And in that moment, not through an existential crisis over time, but in that moment, convinced that he's right, following a faith that he was sure was right, everything changes for the Apostle Saul, or the Apostle, one day, Apostle Paul. I can't help but thinking that the gospel calls us out of all kinds of different backgrounds. It calls to us us who are religious, and it calls to us who are irreligious. The gospel calls to those of us who are searching for something more, and it calls to us who aren't searching at all but are convinced they are right. And such was the Apostle Paul, a religious fanatic convinced that he was right. We see then that Paul makes his way into the city of Damascus, and he has to be led by his travel companions because he's blind. And he makes his way a straight street in Damascus. It's just a street in Damascus. And in fact, today, if you were to go home and Google, you could Google straight street. And I've been told that it is very similar to what it looked like 2,000 years ago. It's very unusual that way. Um, He makes his way to the uh, houses, a man's house on straight street. His name was Judas. And there he was. And while he was there, we learn another thing that Paul is trying to communicate to us about from this text. It's about his gospel message. It is this, that Paul's gospel message does not come from other people. Paul's gospel message does not come from himself. He did not create it in the period of an existential crisis. But neither does Paul's gospel message come from being taught from anyone else. And we see this in his post-conversion experience. Paul writes about it in Galatians 1, verse 16 and 17. And you can read about the whole story in Acts chapter 9, 8 through 25. But here is basically what happens. While the Apostle Paul is in the house of Judas on Straight Street, meanwhile, in another place, somewhere in the city of Damascus, there was a Christian. His name was Ananias. We're told next to nothing about Ananias other than he was a devout follower of Jesus. And God comes to Ananias in a dream and says to Ananias, I want you to go to a man's house, Judas, on Straight Street. And there you will find the man Saul, for he is a chosen instrument 
of mine to preach my gospel to the Gentiles. And Ananias, such as Paul's reputation, or Saul, is that Ananias knows exactly who the Lord is speaking about and says to him, God, isn't this the man that has persecuted your followers? And he says, yes, but everything has changed. This is the man I will use as my chosen instrument to take my word, my gospel, to the Gentiles. And so Ananias finds himself making his way to Judas's house on Straight Street. He puts his hands on the eyes of the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle can see. Immediately, Paul begins to preach. Not really preach, but more to tell his story of what God has done in his life. He goes into this, uh, the synagogues in Damascus and tells his story. And in dramatic irony, we see that the very people who Paul came to, create, uh, to destroy, to, to, to drag away and imprison, he has become one of them. And as he preaches his gospel, and we're not told how long, but we get the impression it's not long, not at all. The Jews have turned from, a fa- uh, the Jews have turned from fans of Paul, the Christian imprisoner and killer, and they have become enemies, and they devise a plot to kill him. But meanwhile, while he was in Damascus telling his story, there were, there were men and there were women who had turned their life over to Jesus and had placed their faith in Jesus, their trust. And these men and women warn the Apostle Paul that there is a plot against his life, and in the dead of night, they lower him a basket, in, they lower him in a basket outside of the city walls so that he can escape and flee the plot against his life. I've always thought the baskets must have been very strong back then and large. But that's also a rabbit trail. I haven't done much work on uh, ancient basket weaving. Yes. I heard you can take that in cla- a class like that in college, and it's an easy A. Nevertheless, Paul makes his way outside of the city of Damascus, and we are told in verse 17 that he finds his, himself in the desert of Arabia. And the text implies that for three years he stays there. We don't know what he did. In fact, Galatians chapter 1, verse 17 is the only place that we even learn about his Arabian experience. Some, uh, some scholars conjecture that during his time in solitary confinement in Arabia in the desert, that he spent time personally with the Lord Jesus Christ and it was Jesus teaching him the nuances of the gospel message that he would take. That's maybe true. We don't even know if he was in solitary confinement. There were people who lived in Arabia. The scholars conjecture this on the basis of verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1 of Galatians by the idea that there was a time when Paul was taught by revelation of Jesus Christ and not from any man. But whatever he did in Arabia, after spending about three years there, he finally makes his way to Damascus. We see first that Paul's gospel message um, is not something he created himself. It's not even something that he was taught by others. For the Apostle Paul goes out of his way to make us understand that he wasn't even with others after he received and was converted by the gospel message that Jesus is our Savior and we need rescue because we're helpless. The third movement in our text that I want to point out to you about Paul's gospel message 
is that Paul's gospel message matches the other apostles. What the content of Paul's gospel message matches the content found in the gospel of the other apostles. We pick up the story in verses 18 through 20 of Galatians 1 when we see Paul's first visit to Jerusalem. The visit takes place three years after his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And we are told in Galatians chapter 1 that this experience, this visit to Jerusalem, was a very short stay, just 15 days. He finally makes his, uh, his way there and spends 15 days, and he spends no time with any of the apostles except for Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. While there, Paul gets to know the apostles, and we are told in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31, that he spends some time there debating and preaching, specifically debating some Grecian Jews who again plot to kill him. And so he is sent away by the Christians in Jerusalem after just 15 days to his hometown in Tarsus in Cilicia. The text continues in Galatians chapter 1 and verses 21 and tells us that Paul, after his short 15-day stay in Jerusalem, spends uh, a time in uh, Syria and Cilicia. And I even looked that up to make sure I pronounced it right. So it is Cilicia. Cilicia, uh, in Cilicia was his hometown of Tarsus, and in Syria was uh, a church that he later would visit called in Antioch, the church at Antioch. The text seems to imply that for about 13 years, Paul spent time in Tarsus and tells us nothing about what he did there. And after those 13 years, the church of Jerusalem sent Barnabas up to Antioch to investigate a, group, a revival that was taking place. Many people had come to Christ from the, the people who had dispersed after the persecution that broke out after Stephen was martyred. And a strong church was forming in the, play, in the city of Antioch in Syria. And Barnabas goes there to check it out. And after seeing that it is real, goes to Tarsus to retrieve Paul. And they go there and they return to Antioch and they begin to preach and strengthen the church there in Antioch. And after about a year there, there is a group of Christians, they're prophets really, and they come up from Jerusalem up to the church of Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are leading. And they tell Paul and Barnabas that a famine is about to break out in Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barnabas, they do a really nice thing. They, they raise a love offering. They take a love offering at the church in Antioch and everybody gives, not of compulsion, but as much as they can. And the church commissions Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem and to deliver this money. And it is 17 years from the time of Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road to the time he goes to Jerusalem for the second time and he spends any substantive time there with the church leaders. From the time of his conversion to the time that he spends significant time in Jerusalem. And he goes there because he's delivering a substantial amount of money to needy Christians in Jerusalem who are about to experience a famine. And Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10 tells us that story. I'll summarize it briefly and then I want to give you a few takeaways. Even for me, this is a lot of history. And I won't test you and I don't expect you to remember it all. I probably won't remember it by Thursday. Yes? Here's what happens in Jerusalem on his second visit. Paul has taken Barnabas, but we also learn in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, that he's taken another man. His name is Titus. He is a Christian, but he's Greek in descent. And so 
the careful Bible reader has his red flags go up and his red blinker on. He's like, he's a Greek. He probably hasn't been circumcised, which is how they told this. I have no idea. But the Jewish Christians there immediately zero in on Titus and on Paul and on his success of preaching the gospel. And they say he needs to be circumcised. Paul goes out of his way in verse 4 to 5 to say that this matter arose because these false teachers compelled Titus to be circumcised, but they resisted him and didn't give in even for a moment so that our freedom and the truth of the gospel may not be compromised. He goes on to say in verse 6 that those false teachers were not in line with the other apostles, the pillars of the church, the true apostles who had spent time with Jesus during his earthly life, Peter, and John, and James. But these men, who the text refers to in verse 6 as men held in high esteem, but who Paul does not uh, give incredible weight to because he realizes God holds no favoritism, added nothing to Paul's message. The message that we are helpless, and Jesus is our Savior, and that trust in him as our Savior is all that we need for a right standing before God. And so the apostles in Jerusalem hear Paul's message and it is confirmed that what Paul was preaching, his gospel, was exactly the same gospel that Peter had been taking to the Jews all these years. So that's Paul's story. I don't know, if you're like me, every time you hear a story, you're always kind of tempted to think about what does it mean and uh, how is it similar to my story? How does it dissimilar to my story? And we start to compare and contrast, and some of that's helpful, some of it's not. But as I've been thinking, and I've spent a lot of time uh, processing the story of Paul's early life, his conversion, as I've been processing what his life was like and what it means, I, I just want to leave you with three takeaways as we go away. And uh, the truth is, I don't expect that you'll get that history all down pat. You won't remember everything I told you. I hope you found it somewhat interesting but I do hope to give you these takeaways. The first one is that we learn from Paul's story, and really every story we ever hear in the Bible, is that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. The good news that God is putting the world back to rights through the person of Jesus Christ is a story that is for every single person. It doesn't matter if you are religious or irreligious. You never go to church, synagogue, or whatever. It doesn't matter if you are searching for something or if you're really satisfied and think your life is awesome. The gospel is for everyone. And when God opens our eyes to see it, we are consumed and compelled by our need in the love of God. The good news of how God is putting the world back to rights is a message that every single person needs. The problem with many of us in our lives is unlike that man who is drowning and is helpless and needs a rescuer, he needs a rescue tube, we often in our, if we're lucky, 80 to 90 years of existence, often don't see that we're drowning. We can even have this problem after we've believe we've placed our trust in Jesus. We can start to think that it is not Jesus alone 
but it is Jesus plus my awesome good works. The gospel is for everyone. We are helpless, in need of rescue, and Jesus is our rescuer. It doesn't matter if you're religious, if you're irreligious. It doesn't matter if you're searching or satisfied, whether you recognize your need or you don't. You are in a process of an 80-year life of drowning that you need to see desperately that you need to be saved. The second takeaway I look when I see Paul's life is that the gospel changes you immediately when you place your trust in it, but it takes a lifetime to, to live it and to understand it. As you really start to process and think through Paul's story, I bet you'll think that it's not too dissimilar to yours. You think about that time, perhaps if you've already done this, when you've placed your trust in Jesus, but it took you time to understand and to live it. And the most mature Christians I know, including the Apostle Paul, would say that they are still trying to understand and live it. For the process of growing closer to Christ and to understanding and living out the gospel, as simple of a message as it is, takes a lifetime to understand and to live. When Paul comes to faith at the Damascus Road, he has three years where he doesn't even hardly interact with anybody, supposedly. He has 14 years during the time when he's in Tarsus and Antioch before we ever learn anything about his life in the book of Acts. It takes time to understand and live out the gospel. During my time in seminary, one of the ideas that fascinated me and uh, my one teacher, uh, Dan Wallace, talked about was even if you look closely at the epistles of Paul and you take a look at his early epistles, Galatians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and then you look at his later epistles, his prison epistles and his pastoral epistles, you see development in Paul's understanding of how he understood God. And in Philippians, Paul says, I pursue Christ not as though I have already attained, but as though I am reaching to understand what it means to know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might be transformed by the power of his death. The gospel changes us immediately. Sometimes we wish it changes us a little bit more immediately. We just get rid of all of our bad habits and make everything awesome. It changes us immediately. It makes our whole world different, and we see it through a new lens, but it takes time to live and understand. So be patient with yourself. Not patient in a way that you look at your life and say, yeah, I know that's not bad. Who cares? We're just human. But in the way that we say, I know I'm not doing it perfectly, but I am on a path to doing it better. The third thing that I take away when I look at Paul's story is that we need to examine each of our stories because the story of how God has changed your life is one of the most powerful tools you have. It's powerful for your life and it's powerful for transforming your friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors around you. If all of us would just get a little bit more concerned about ourselves, I think that would be a positive thing versus other people. But the most powerful thing that we have to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are helpless and we need Jesus, is to sincerely and genuinely speak out of how Jesus has transformed you and me which leads you down a road of introspection to ask yourself, 
how is Christ changing me? How is my life and my reality different? Because I believe that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, and coming again Son of God. How is my life different with the recognition that I am helpless and that Jesus is my rescuer, my Savior? And if you begin to process and allow the reality of the gospel to transform you, it is not all that weird to share it with other people. For if it's really changing you, it'd be kind of weird to not talk about the most important thing in your life to people that you care about. And in this way, the mission of Paul is not stopped, but it goes on. It goes on in our lives. The story of a man who was changed in an instant, not through existential crisis, but through God revealing himself to him in a moment. It goes on in a story of that man, and as he took that message that God loves us, that you are helpless, but that Jesus is your Savior, the very message that he gives, in fact, the book of Acts ends in Acts chapter 28 with no conclusion on where Paul is. What he, or he's in Rome, and he's in prison, and he's preaching the gospel, and we don't know what's about to happen. I think the book of Acts ends this way, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, because the book of Acts is meant to include us as taking that same message forward, proclaiming the good news that has transformed our life first so that it might transform others. It's kind of fun to hear a story. And it's kind of fun to hear a story of a man who's dead 2,000 years and who changed civilization. Him and the Irish, yeah? How is the gospel changing you? And then take that message to the world. Let me pray for you to that end. Father, we ask that you would move in our hearts and minds the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. We'd so desperately want the good news of Jesus Christ, not so that we can just escape punishment, but so that we might be transformed now and so that we might transform our world, bringing the reality of God to earth as it is in heaven. We ask that you would empower us and embolden us to do this through the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might glorify you and experience joy. It's in the name of Christ we pray all of this. Amen.